Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is Season 5 of My 70s TV Childhood. Hello, and welcome to Episode 1 of the fifth season of My 70s TV Childhood. And they said it wouldn't last. How wrong they all were. And the reason we're still here is that we have grown a wonderful group of listeners who not only listen to the podcast in large numbers, but also take the time and trouble to share their own memories of growing up as a child in the 1970s in Britain, and the fascination with, or perhaps in my case, addiction to, television that many of us had back then. If you're a new listener, then you are most welcome. And if you've been listening since the start of our nostalgic journey, then... All I can say is you must have lots of stamina. It's a new year as I record this, so Happy New Year everyone. I hope that 2024 brings you only good things. For many of us, the hustle and bustle of Christmas is starting to seem like a distant memory. The relatives have gone home after staying for just that little bit too long, and the tinsel and that neon penguin decoration which seemed like a good idea in the shop is going back into the loft for another year. Yes, we're in that post-Christmas sort of mini depression period when all we have to remember the Christmas season by is a dwindling supply of quality street and an unopened box of dates still sitting in the cupboard. Even the novelty socks, which seem vaguely amusing on Christmas Day, now sit rather sadly in a drawer, as we all realise that there will actually never be a suitable occasion for us to wear them. It's also a time of making resolutions and committing to do all kinds of good things, which will make us healthier, happier, wealthier and feel better about ourselves. Have you made any New Year's resolutions? And how are they going? Oh yes, I thought so. I last made a New Year's resolution in January 1978, which was never to make another New Year's resolution. So I'm quite proud I've managed to keep that one going for so long. I think I must have been a slightly precocious child. So going back to resolutions, how many of you would join the local gym or started the Couch to 5k running programme? Well, well done if you've done either, and good luck. Although it is worth remembering that the business model of just about every gym assumes that there's a huge influx of cash from people taking up new subscriptions in January, and then there's an expectation that at least 60% of those new customers will hardly set foot over the threshold after the middle of February. Cynical, perhaps, but true. So given that January is, well, a bit of a downer, not least because many get paid early in December, and then have to eke that payout until the end of January, just as those Christmas credit card bills start rolling in. We've got a great chance to cheer up on my 70s TV childhood, with some lovely heartwarming memories of 70s childhood television. But we're not going to do that. Oh no. Instead, I'm going to take you back to one of the most gripping, but also one of the most miserable, bleak, and frankly grim programmes I watched as a child. It was shown on Wednesday nights at 10 past 8 on BBC One between 1975 and 1977. 
and from the opening sequence, it was clear it wasn't going to be a barrel of laughs. But I loved it. I remember the first episode vividly, and the opening titles in particular. I think it's one of the only shows I've ever seen where the entire backstory is played out in about 50 seconds, therefore meaning that no explanation, prologue, or even pilot episode is required. The sequence, as I'm sure many of you remember, shows an Asian man, possibly Chinese, in a laboratory wearing a surgical mask, who drops a chemical flask on the floor, and unwittingly unleashes a powerful and deadly virus. Rather than immediately self-isolating and booking a PCR test, the scientist rather unwisely gets on a plane, and we then see his passport stamped with Mokhbar, aka Moscow, where he has a sort of funny turn and drops dead in the airport. We then see more and more passport stamps showing worldwide destinations, which finally ends with London in big red letters, and the screen is filled with red presumably signifying blood and death. It's all very clever, in really, because what more do you need to know? Deadly virus sweeps world, kills lots of people. I'll put up a link to the opening sequence on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com, where you can take a look and leave me your thoughts. While I'm on that subject, let me remind you of some of the other ways you can get in touch. You can tweet us at 70stvchildhood, find us on Facebook and YouTube, under the handle at my70stvchildhood. We're also on LinkedIn, or if that's all too much for you, you can simply email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Anyway, back to Survivors, and back to 1975. The opening episode introduced us to some of those who were to become the main protagonists. Two women, Jenny Richards and Abby Grant. Jenny, played by Lucy Fleming, is a normal everyday woman living in London. I remember that she had a friend who was a doctor in a big London hospital, who tells her that hundreds of people are dying of this disease, but the government is covering up what's happening by claiming there's a flu epidemic. Oh, and I think she asked the doctor to see a friend of hers who had the disease. Yes, that's right, and once he's spilled the beans, it's clear that we and the country, and probably the world, are only going in one direction. Jenny's friend dies, And then the doctor becomes ill too and warns Jenny, who seems to have immunity from the disease, to get out of London before anarchy erupts, which, wisely, she does, although not without seeing lots of people dead or dying. There's plenty in this for young children with a vivid imagination. Lots of extras lying in the street, bodies hanging out of crashed cars, and the odd person staggering about before dropping dead. Absolutely brilliant. Anyway, so that's Jenny. We also meet Abby, played by Carolyn Seymour. 
who's a home county's wife in the sort of Margot from the good life type of mould, who gets the disease and falls into a coma, whilst her husband, played by Peter Bowles, looks after her. Ah, I hear you say, not another Peter Bowles starring role. Well, unfortunately not, because when Abby wakes up, she finds her husband is dead on the sofa, along with everybody else in her home county's village, which is a bit of a shocker, I have to say. Eventually, she decides to go and find her son, Peter, who is at boarding school, and she finds out that he and those pupils who haven't died have gone off camping in the country to try and survive. Having learned this, she goes home and does what any sensible person might do, cuts off all the hair, before setting fire to a house, giving her husband a kind of Viking burial, I suppose. So episode one sets the tone for the rest of the series. Along the way, the two women are joined by Greg, played by Ian McCulloch, uh, not the lead singer of Echo and the Bunnymen, who takes on the more traditional male hero role, and several others, including Tom, played by Telfrin Thomas, who was a seedy, dissolute tramp with questionable morals, who became part of one of the most memorable storylines of the show. Now, this is going to sound a bit unfair on Telfrin, who I'm afraid is no longer with us, but uh, I really didn't like the character he played in Survivors, and I also didn't like the character he played in Dad's Army, Private Cheeseman, who seemed absolutely pointless and totally unfunny. But that's, that's another podcast episode. Clearly, given recent global events, the notion of a deadly virus escaping from a lab in China and rapidly infecting the population worldwide isn't as far-fetched an idea as it might have seemed to us in 1975. The series was devised by Terry Nation of Doctor Who fame, who managed to create so many scary monsters and ideas like survivors that I do start to worry about him. Apparently, the idea for the show came to him when there was a power cut in the country village he lived in, and he wondered what it might be like if the lights didn't come back on again. He quickly worked out that he wouldn't last long himself, and so the idea of survivors was born. In that first series, we were reminded time and time again that so much of what we depend on in the Western world is the product of a complex industrial economy, and if that was threatened, then only the most audacious and innovative would survive. It was stressed that the power supplies failed because the people who ran power stations were dead, that food ran out because there was nobody to process it and deliver it to shops, and the whole theme was darkly apocalyptic and, as a result, thoroughly depressing. As Abby, Greg, Jenny and the others travelled into more and more remote parts of the countryside, there was no let-up in the bleakness of the plots or of the fate of the human race. This allowed for lots of great one-off storylines, like Abby, or was it Jenny, stumbling on what seems to be a progressive community run by a trade union leader, played by the great George Baker. Even this brief promise of a positive future is quickly snuffed out when Baker turns out, surprise surprise, to be a megalomaniac who summarily executes anyone he doesn't like the look of, causing Abby, or was it Jenny, I can't remember, to literally run for the hills. The storylines were a bit grim for the 810 slot on BBC One, when children like me might be sneaking a peek. In almost every episode, somebody met a violent death, and human behaviour was seen at its most cynical and destructive, all of which was great for us younger viewers. As the series went on, the group of survivors became more established and ended up living together on a country estate in a, a sort of commune, but even then they weren't safe. In what was the most memorable and shocking episode of the first series, Tom, 
the dodgy Welshman mentioned earlier, murders Wendy, one of the commune members, after she rejects his sexual overtures. Tom stays quiet, and the finger of guilt is pointed at Barney, a kindly, childlike man, with what we would now call learning disabilities, who doesn't really understand what has happened, and who is a friend of Wendy. Barney is put on trial by members of the community, and found guilty, and then, shockingly, is sentenced to death as a result. I remember the terrible scene where he's led outside by Greg, bewildered at what's going on, before we hear a gunshot and see the birds flying from nearby trees. Almost immediately, Tom breaks down and confesses, but is spared a similar fate, although he was subsequently killed a few episodes later. It's amazing how many people I've spoken to about survivors who remember that episode above all others. There was no levity, no happy ending, just bleak and depressing events, which actually show that the characters we've been following through the series were just as fallible as those more obviously evil people they came across on their travels. Like many of the programmes we've featured on My 70s TV Childhood, I think that the first series of Survivors was the best. The second and third series were okay, I suppose, but another 20-odd episodes of unrelenting grimness became harder and harder to watch. I do remember that early in series two, we learned that Abby had left to go and find her son, or presumably Carol and Seymour had found a better-paid gig somewhere else, and then half the regular cast were immediately killed off in a fire which destroyed their house. So in one episode, most of the characters we got to know in the first series were gone. And that's quite a difficult one for us as audiences to manage. By the time we got to the end of the third series, I think the writers were beginning to struggle, and we ended up, for some reason, with everyone going to Scotland and seeing that hydroelectricity and steam trains were going to be the saviour of the human race. So the start of a little bit of positivity there, I suppose. In truth, the series ran out of steam, as I'm not sure any of us could stand much more misery. Even for me as a young child, the high death count and utter, unrelenting despair did become a bit grinding. But Survivors occupies a unique spot in 70s TV history. Strangely, I don't ever remember the BBC repeating the show, although I'm sure some of our listeners might be able to confirm whether that's true or not. It was, during its first series, extremely popular, and I think it complemented the feeling of despair and misery that was generally felt in the UK at that time perfectly. Like lots of other former hits, the BBC tried to revive it, this time in 2008, but like a lot of the other reboots that had been tried, I didn't really see the point, particularly as they cast lots of good-looking, rather cool actors in the main parts. Part of the success of the original show was that viewers could relate to many of the characters being, well, much like them, and so could imagine how they might react if a global pandemic hit. Thankfully, as we know from our last few years' experience, when we did experience a global pandemic, we didn't end up with society collapsing and humans turning into feral tribes killing each other. So I'm quite glad about that. I think we should probably leave survivors' incredibly bleak view of humanity in the past where we can look back at it fondly. Do you remember survivors? And am I being unkind in highlighting how unremittingly depressing it was? Let me know by commenting on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com or by contacting us via one of our many social media sites mentioned earlier in the episode. 
So I hope that's helped your new year get off to a thoroughly depressing start. Don't forget, it could be a lot worse than a long depressing January. Just remember what happened in Survivors. But seriously, I wish you and those you love all the best for a happy, prosperous and safe 2024. And don't forget to make listening to our podcast one of your New Year resolutions. Take care and join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.